Hello, and thanks for listening in to Welcome to Antifascism, a Substack podcast and blog that examines why liberal nations and people were seduced by fascist ideas and movements over the last decade. I am one of your hosts, Alistair Cannon, and this is episode four, where we continue our exploration of the cultural, political, and psychic effects of the 20th century's most terrifying invention, the atomic bomb. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and Substack, where you can read text versions of each episode before the audio is released. After Hiroshima, the new anxious religion of imaginary apocalypses and permanent fear began. It infected our dreams and transformed our desires. Soon, we all spoke the language of the bomb. Since the nuclear threat affected the whole human race and the fate of the world, Michel Foucault once said, the atomic scientists' discourse could at the same time be the discourse of the universal. With our new shared vernacular, we collectively rewrote our ideas of death and changed the way we lived our lives. The bomb, in short, had an ethical effect. It remade the self. In America, the bomb transformed people's relationship to entertainment, sex, and leisure. By the 1950s, Las Vegas, Nevada was already popular for its casinos and its showgirls, for cheap risk and quick gratification. But now, it became a tourist destination for those who wished to witness and feel the bomb's power directly. To see firsthand the instruments our leaders used to gamble with our species' existence. The US government conducted tests in the Nevada deserts north of the city. And from the city's rooftops, several times a year, visitors could see the dawn sky light up in brilliant white. Cocktails were served and jazz music played as mushroom clouds unfurled in the distant air, as nuclear fire devoured the desert sands and radiation spilled from the sky. Today, these deserts are known as the most bombed place on Earth. Meanwhile, the city became one of our world's paradises for consumer desire, for glamour, gambling, sex, bodybuilding, shopping, and other American experiences. Las Vegas now hosts pornography conventions. The country's largest ever mass shooting occurred there in 2017. Death rubbed against pleasure in nuclear age Nevada. With bombs detonating on the horizon, tourists could enjoy modern life's masochistic pleasures in Las Vegas. As displays of power and destruction, these violent spectacles had an undeniable erotic allure that the city harnessed in its culture. As the bombs exploded, 
Elvis Presley would perform his sex-drenched music to these tourists in Las Vegas bars, hips shaking before an audience desperate to see the man billed as America's only atomic-powered singer. An early concert review describes teenagers screaming while Elvis spread a vast amount of rock and roll radiation over the spacious Veterans Memorial Auditorium. Hiroshima's black rain now erupted from the body of the country's foremost sex symbol. People violently desired exposure to his radiation. At the same time, authorities also established the atomic bomb beauty pageants, naming five women Miss Atomic between 1952 and 1957. The last and most famous nuclear beauty, Miss Atomic Bomb, wore a mushroom cloud dress and was crowned a beauty queen as the US government conducted Operation Plumbob less than a hundred miles away. A photograph of her circulated nationally shows a young, beautiful woman whose face is writ with an expression that lies somewhere between terror and ecstasy. A burning emulsion of pleasure and fear. This blending of sex and death spread far beyond Las Vegas and soon permeated US culture. An anecdote recounted by Noam Chomsky shows the bomb's strange, terrible reach. In 1950 or so, Chomsky and his wife went to Boston's Red Light District to see a documentary film called Hiroshima. The atmosphere in the adult theater had a hysterical edge. So we went down to the Red Light District. The movie turned out to be a documentary. It was a very poorly made but plainly authentic visual report photography of the actual events. You know, people running to the river with their skin flowing off and, you know, these hideous things we know about. And the audience was laughing. It was being shown as a pornographic movie. I mean, that was one kind of reaction. Freud believed laughter was our way of expressing repressed, sexual, or aggressive urges, of venting steam to stop an explosion. Sensing the erotic power and unspeakable horror of what they saw, the audience around Chomsky transmuted terror into comedy. Laughing, they revealed a basic pattern for audience reaction tests in the 20th century. A great insight for marketers, entertainers, and governments who hoped to exploit the unconscious ideas of their people. In the 1950s, the threat of the bomb dissolved the boundaries between sex and violence, pleasure and terror, entertainment and anxiety. Earlier in the century, psychoanalysts like Sigmund Freud had shown how our sexual and aggressive instincts were held in place by our ideals. Humans redirected their antisocial urges into moral self-constraint and their efforts to actualize their ideals, a process Freud called sublimation. 
By causing the collapse of our beliefs and ideals, the bomb freed these instinctual energies, which could now pursue their original targets, sex and violence, or the sadomasochistic blending of the two. Sexual liberation followed, and it is no surprise that the sexual revolution began only 20 years after the Trinity Test. But at the same time, as political theorist Wendy Brown has discussed, this desublimation lessened the power of human conscience. The casualties included our general concern for others and our ability to delay gratification or restrain ourselves to preserve future generations of humanity. A sense of immediacy thus emerged in our culture of the bomb. Cultural critic George Steiner once observed that the threats of mass death and extinction that emerged in the 20th century, the bomb, but also the world wars, the concentration camps, the gulags, destroyed our belief that the future would be better. The spectre of death killed our utopian dreaming. In the wake of these atrocities, we no longer experienced history as ascendant. Moreover, the only form of immortality known to humans, our preservation in memory and culture, was placed in jeopardy. The future was now in peril. No longer, then, would people sacrifice the present for what might come tomorrow. No longer could people gamble on transcendence. No longer would we live in a world where the horizon of meaning stretched indefinitely into the distance. Meaning instead threatened to vanish entirely in a white flash of heat. Laboring beneath the presence of death, people turned away from the future toward what Steiner called a utopia of the immediate, where impulse, desire, intensity, and rapid satisfaction reigned supreme. This nihilistic utopia, of course, finds its most immediate expression in the consumption culture that exploded in the 1960s, a culture dependent on the rapacious extraction of resources from deep within the earth, on a demand for another kind of groundlessness, whose ecological consequences would eventually threaten the very grounds of our world's social systems. Against these nihilistic forces, others engaged in Apollonian denials of reality. Some became indifferent and apathetic to the danger. Others fetishized it or adopted ironic attitudes towards destruction. For Salvador Dali, the terror he felt after Hiroshima led him to obsess over the bomb. The atom soon became his favorite subject of reflection, and he elaborated a form of nuclear mysticism that he felt would allow him to gain control over the world's hidden laws. Others responded to their terror as philosophers always have, developing new philosophies that defended the meaning of life against nihilism. There is a reason 
Viktor Frankl's Holocaust memoir, Man's Search for Meaning, became a bestseller in post-war America. Much like Karl Fried Graf Durkheim in his Japanese prison cell, people were desperate for hopeful ideas that could displace or deny the fear of loss or death that ravaged their minds. Even more bafflingly, given the origins of the bomb, others redoubled their commitment to scientific progress. Driven by Cold War geopolitics, absurd and grandiose projects were planned. The US government's Project A-119 perhaps foremost among them. Project A-119's goal was simple, to demonstrate to the world the power of their military technologies and their cultural supremacy. The US government planned to nuke the moon. Project manager Leonard Rifle said the intention was to create a mushroom cloud that would reach upwards from the lunar surface to be lit from behind by the sun. The explosion was to be so large that it would be visible from Earth to the naked eye. Project A119 is a sign that US officials understood the symbolic meaning and power of the bomb. By firing their missiles, phallic objects, into the moon, a maternal symbol, they could create an awesome, dreamlike image of destruction, and the world would know they were ruled not by goodness or justice, but by pure, violent, masculine force. Project A119 was inevitably abandoned. The US government deemed the risk of the nuke falling back to Earth to be too high, and they redirected their efforts towards safer ways to demonstrate the powers and precision of their rocket technology. Most significant here was the space race. Hoping to capture the public's imagination, in 1962, President Kennedy announced a new spiritual quest for America. He declared that man would land on the moon before the end of the 1960s. With his idea, he spoke to the spiritual yearning of a nation that had lost its beliefs and had nothing to replace them. So began the Apollo missions, a thinly veiled demonstration of America's missile supremacy, designed and led by former Nazi scientists like Werner von Braun. NASA started to train astronauts in the craters left by nuclear tests, which resembled those on the Moon's surface. As if in an unconscious admission of the link between these projects, NASA launched its mission to the Moon on July 16, 1969, 24 years to the day after the Trinity tests. Four days after the launch, Men had walked on the moon, and the world was amazed. Yet the fanfare concealed something more important and disquieting. Hannah Arendt once wrote that overcoming our earthbound nature would be among the most profound changes to the human condition conceivable. 
When they traveled to the moon, the astronauts accomplished this change. They dwelled in the void for days between their departure and their arrival, and floating in their spaceship, looking across the vast and dark expanse between themselves and Earth, they discovered a psychic groundlessness that mirrored the spiritual one that motivated their efforts. Actor William Shatner gives an exemplary account of this psychic groundlessness. During his trip to space, Shatner looked out the window into the blackness. Instead of the mystery, majesty, or awe he believed the sight would inspire, all he saw was death. All he felt was dread. Turning back toward Earth, hovering in the void, a funereal sadness consumed Shatner as he sensed our planet's fragility and the brute violence humanity inflicts upon it every day, driving it ever closer to destruction. Shatner doesn't mention the bomb in his recount, but we can't help but wonder if the bomb was on his mind. Between the images of Earth suspended in the void and those of the hollows in the ground we gouge out with nuclear blasts, between the pale blue dot and Hiroshima, we catch a glimpse of the 20th century's most traumatic thought, the contingency of everything, the possibility of nothing. In his essay, No Apocalypse, Not Now, Jacques Derrida writes that his idea of deconstruction belongs to the nuclear age. Haunted by the thought of groundlessness and annihilation, we saw that the very existence, possibility, and significance of our culture and its archives of meaning could be destroyed, totally and without remainder. The bomb, in a way, was a force of difference. After the end of World War II, all our present moments became contaminated by absence, by the memory of Hiroshima, by the anticipation of death, while any meaning became burdened by the thought of meaningless collapse. The threat of nuclear annihilation our shared apocalyptic fiction bolstered by moments like the Cuban Missile Crisis showed too that everything we thought to be necessary or enduring was prone to destruction. It showed how our societies, our cultures, were not secure or necessary, but contingent and vulnerable. The bomb showed that there was no transcendental idea, signifier, or moral that governed us, and that the world's laws were not based on righteousness or virtue, but were founded on force, on the capacity to bring death to the world. It showed how our highest values and beliefs, in science and enlightenment, in civilization and culture, in freedom and rationality, were contaminated by their opposites, that they became triumphant only by repressing the irrationality and madness that fueled them. 
cultural progress became coextensive with the regression to violence, savagery, and barbarism. The bomb demanded that we doubt our belief in human progress, for it was progress that led us to the brink of the most senseless death imaginable, extinction by mass murder-suicide. After the blasts in Japan, the ground opened beneath our feet, and we felt ourselves falling into a future where, eventually, we might vanish without a trace, a fear or a hope that marked every second and every day. American writer Don DeLillo once said that, with the onset of the bomb, the communal spirit becomes associated with danger and loss rather than with celebration. He was right. After Hiroshima, our most cherished ideals deconstructed themselves. When our highest values hitherto devalue themselves, Nietzsche said, culture enters a period of active nihilism, and nihilism is precisely what the bomb brought. The bomb, and those craters in New Mexico and Nevada, those images of Hiroshima, gave us the thought of groundlessness, both physical and spiritual, and a world where anxiety, manic excitation, and collapse reigned over both hope and despair. The nihilism inaugurated by the bomb reshaped the world. All it unleashed, the forces of sexual liberation, the culture of immediate gratification and consumption, the narcissistic individualism, the collapse of value structures, the spiritual yearning, the pervasive sense of irony and ambivalence towards sources of authority, the disintegration of our sense of safety and the collective anticipation of death, all this ushered in a new cultural epoch. George Steiner called it post-culture, but today it is best known as postmodernism. And its new sensibilities could be seen in works of art across the culture. Thomas Pynchon, that man who felt somber glee at the idea of annihilation, gave us 1971's Gravity's Rainbow his novel of sex, death, and missiles. Later, Don DeLillo delivered his magnum opus, 1997's Underworld, his startling meditation on the American century, the century of the bomb. In film, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless expressed the logic of post-culture by collapsing time into fragments of intensity, sexuality, and absurd violence. Stanley Kubrick, perhaps, exemplified the era's sensibilities in his films, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and A Clockwork Orange. Exploring themes like taboo sexuality, the libidinal underpinnings of masculine violence, and the terrifying yet orgastic possibilities of nuclear conflict the spiritual questing of the space race, and the nihilistic, sexualized violence of empty urban life. Kubrick showed 
how our highest values were condemning themselves. He captured our culture's response to the groundlessness, the nihilism, the deconstruction, the death anxiety that followed the Trinity test. The bombing of Hiroshima helped to end the war against fascism in 1945. But the nuclear blasts on August 6th that year ultimately became a major blow to the sense of self-integrity of people and societies everywhere. From the groundlessness burns like a black hole into the world's dreams. From the stains left by the black rain, a new shared imaginary emerged, a nihilistic myth for the 20th century that gave life and death a new meaning and purpose. As we shall see, the earth-shaking vibrations of the bomb echoed through the following decades, leading us where we find ourselves today, the world of antifascism. But it also opened the way for a whole new kind of artist to emerge, the creators of post-culture, the David Bowies of our world. That's the end of episode four. Thanks for listening and subscribe on Spotify and Substack to listen to our next episodes and read our posts.